Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. I don't want to be too militarist about it, but they had a, a mild start to the winter in Ukraine. So the ground was mushy. And so I think he, he needed a couple more weeks <laughs> make sure it gets nice and hard before he has all his options in front of him. Frozen, hard, solid ground, yeah, so that your armor can roll as quickly as it can. The weather is just one of many unknowns when trying to predict what Russia's Vladimir Putin will do next. Right now, Putin's troops are virtually surrounding Ukraine, and they seem poised to move in in case diplomacy fails. I, I believe that's what happens when you let a bunch of baby boomers run the world. <laughs> <laughs> to understand the political war game here, I want to get inside two boomers' heads, Biden's and Putin's. So... I was 25 years in the Foreign Service. I called the former ambassador to NATO. And in 2017, 2019, was U.S. Special Representative for Ukraine negotiations. Kurt Volker. There is a worst-case scenario, but there are plenty of other bad scenarios as well, too. So we can't just focus on the worst-case one. Plus, I'm going to Russia. I feel sorry for my brothers, the Ukrainians. We love them. You know what's going on? It's the end of the world. Do you see how people talk to each other? We will have war. This is Playbook Deep Dive. I'm Ryan Lizza. In the middle of Moscow, 300 miles away from the Ukrainian border, in the middle of Russia's famous Red Square, Russians are still celebrating the holidays. I hope everybody has peace in their family. I hope everything will pass. Uliana Pavlova is walking the square. One of the most festive places in Moscow. Asking how people are feeling right now. She's a freelancer based in Moscow. Several people told me they felt uneasy about this, but at the same time, you know, no one was buying off goods or, you know, coming up with plan B. And here in DC, Russia hawks like former Ambassador Volker are monitoring each of Russia's moves very closely. President Putin has placed over 100,000 troops in and around Ukraine. There's a sort of war of words going on between NATO leaders, especially President Biden and Russia. An increasing list of deterrent actions by the United States, including threats of uh, sanctions. President Biden also saying that he might personally sanction President Putin. A determination to reinforce uh, NATO troops in Eastern Europe. Some signs that there are Russian soldiers penetrating beyond their current positions. As we sit here and talk, give us the sort of worst case scenario that we're trying to uh, prevent here. The worst case one would be that Russia launches a major invasion into Ukraine that attempts to take over the entire country, subordinate Ukraine to Russia again, uh, as was the case with the Soviet Union. 
that would cause you know massive fighting inside Ukraine. Ukrainians are far more capable than they were in 2014 and 2015. Uh, there would be internal resistance in Ukraine. And there would be a lot of assistance to Ukraine this time uh, compared to uh, 2014, 2015, when it was Crimea and a uh, invasion just in the Donbas. So I think that countries are much more prepared to help out. That would lead to a wider conflict with Russia, which could even cause Russia to then, as part of its doctrine, consider the uh, the deployment of nuclear weapons. So with that, that would really escalate in, in a tr- tremendous and terrible way if that were to happen. I do not think that scenario is likely. Uh, I think what is much more likely is that Russia does invade Ukraine, but does it in the south, the east, maybe a few uh, fronts in the north as well, tries to take more territory, does it quickly, and then tries to or is willing to then have a new ceasefire. I think they're interested in linking Crimea to the reservoirs to the north of Crimea, which used to feed water to Crimea. And I think they're interested in connecting Crimea by land to Donbass and to Russia. Uh, That would include taking, for instance, the the whole coastline in the Sea of Azov, um, the city of Mariupol. And that would create a contiguous territory that would connect all of this to Russian territory itself. And then we'll see whether he just leaves it at that, whether he recognizes it as an independent state of Novorossiya, or whether he decides to annex it to Russia. I think a lot of those things are then possible. Even in doing this, there would be substantial fighting. There would be people killed. There would be refugees. The Ukrainian forces will fight back. Uh, It is going to be a, a big and messy war if they do this. But Russia does have superior military forces, particularly superior air and naval forces, and I think is in a position to prevail. But I think that is a more likely scenario, and that's what I think the efforts of the administration and NATO and European allies are all seeking to prevent now. Let's back up a second and try to explain to listeners how Putin sees this conflict. There's a a lot of talk, and we heard it from President Biden recently, um, that he is driven by reintegrating all of the former Soviet states and I want to get your take on whether that's a, an accurate understanding of Putin, or as time has gone on and the you know the uh, decades have passed, that he has slightly less ambitious view of what actually can be regained. I don't think anyone really thinks that you know Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania are ever going back, and he'd have to be tell me if I'm wrong, quite deluded to believe that. Um, and give us a little bit of background on, on your sort of education in Putinism and what your view is of his goals and intentions here and what sort of drives them. This is the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Soviet Union this year. December 30th, 2022 will be the 100th anniversary. Um, the Soviet Union was founded on the territory of the former Russian Empire. And I do think he is trying to build a greater Russia on the territory of the former Soviet Union. And he has taken security control of Belarus already. Uh, He has taken control of the security forces of Kazakhstan. He has taken part of Georgia already. He's taken part of Ukraine. He occupies part of Moldova. And I think he is uh, ramping this up to do more. So that's one thing, is rebuilding a, a greater Russia. The second thing is I think he resents the European security order that has been in place since the 1970s with the Helsinki Accords. If you remember after World War II, there was an agreement with Stalin at Yalta to divide up Europe into an east and west, and there, there was this two spheres of influence. I think uh, the Helsinki Accords effectively changed the principles in Europe and said, no, look, 
Every state is a sovereign state. Every state uh, has a right to its independence, has a right to choose its own security orientation, not necessarily fully implemented as the, the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union were still there. And when these countries had a chance to be free after 1989 and 1991, uh, a lot of them chose to be democracies, market economies, to align with NATO, to align with the EU, and to be part of a collective self-defense uh, entity in Europe. And Putin wants this to be reversed. He wants to go back to Yalta. He wants to go back to having a Russian sphere of influence that is recognized by everybody else in Europe. And that's what his proposals to the U.S. and NATO in December are all about. One question is, why now? And why with Biden rather than with the previous American president? What do you think it is about this moment that drove him to this decision? And there's a lot of commentary out there that, especially from the right, that the pullout in Afghanistan somehow um, drove this decision because it made Biden and the United States look weak. Others take the opposite position and say, well, actually, the, the pullout from Afghanistan made Putin realize that Biden was very aware of where American sort of military should be around the world. And this might be the, the perfect moment to get Biden to engage on on what the European you know, security architecture should look like and maybe, maybe rethink that. So why now? And uh, what, how do you think the change in American president changed his thinking? Well, that's, a, that's an excellent question because he, he invaded Georgia in 2008. He invaded Ukraine in 2014. He's kept the fighting on there at a low level ever since. But this is a new level of threat. And uh, I think there are several factors here. One of them is he sees weakness in the U.S. and in Europe, both. You mentioned Afghanistan, and I believe that is a significant factor that he saw that the U.S. does not have the stomach to exercise force, um, that we are tired of this, we want to pull back. Uh, we were not willing to keep even 2,500 troops in Afghanistan. And the chaos that ensued when we pulled out, I think is something that everybody in the world saw, including Putin. And he thought, okay, these, um, the United States is no longer committed to exercising power in the world the way it used to be. And that this situation may not last forever. <laughs> Russia is gradually getting weaker over time. Ukraine is gradually getting stronger over time. NATO may bounce back. Uh, the U.S. may bounce back. Uh, so this is a propitious time to act. Let's talk about the NATO response so far, and especially the White House response. Let's start with your sort of overview of how Biden has handled this crisis so far. You've been critical at the outset. I think you've been a little bit more complimentary more recently, but give us your view of, of where they've gotten it right and where you think they've uh, fallen short so far. Well, you know, what, what I think is positive right now is we are finally getting into a proactive mode. And I, that's what I would criticize as well. I don't think we got there fast enough. We saw the mm -hmm. Russian military build up already in the fall. And we knew that this was a threatening move. And then uh, it, was already, it was December 17th, I believe, when Russia delivered its proposals to uh, the U.S. and NATO demanding this rewriting of European security architecture, I think we should have been very clear immediately, these are unacceptable, we're not negotiating about these. Um, and we should have been putting in place things that would strengthen our position on the ground. 
so that it would be clear to Putin, not only are we rejecting these proposals, but we are defending our principles. That's where I think we are today. <laughs> we now have President Biden activating 8,500 U.S. troops. We have NATO countries uh, deploying forces to the eastern part of the alliance to help reassure the allies there. Some allies in the east are now transferring military equipment that we've given them to Ukraine with a U.S. blessing for that they would do this. Um, and the U.S. has increased its security assistance to Ukraine. These are all things that we could have and should have been doing back in December. And I think that would have had more of an impact on Putin's thinking um, than we see today. Um, I still think that we have an opportunity to apply some sanctions on Russia as well. A lot has changed in Russia since 2014, and Putin has spent a lot of time arguably making Russia a whole lot more sanctions proof than he may have been in the past. And, and I know that the sanctions debate gets very technical and it depends on precisely what we're talking about. But I would like you to sort of address that argument to the extent that uh, we can really predict how big a deal these sanctions will be. The, the White House keeps calling them, you know, sanctions with massive consequences and, you know, using a lot of, a lot of scary words. And it's sometimes hard to, to really know if they how much bite they have. I assume Putin's thought about this quite carefully, uh, you know, what the menu of deterrence would be from the West if he got to this point. And of course, there's the added issue of uh, European countries being divided about um, wh whether they, they agree with these sanctions, you know, mostly, as you pointed out, um, because they, countries like Germany rely on natural gas from Russia. Are sanctions enough? Will they work? Yeah. Sanctions that have been applied to date have clearly not impacted Putin's decision making. Uh, so the question then is, OK, if we go to a much higher level of sanctions, what would that be and would that make a difference? In terms of what it would be, what you hear from the administration, I think this is sensible, is uh, sanctions that hit the financial sector. So the ability of Russia's banks to conduct business and therefore also the ability of major state-owned enterprises to conduct business. And uh, the denial of critical technologies to Russia. So kind of reinstituting what we used to have under COCOM, which was uh, critical technologies and military technologies and dual use technologies that we would deny uh, to the Soviet Union. Looking at how you know, American great tech companies can be compelled to deny access to Russia. I think that's smart as well. Uh, how devastating would this be? I think that there would be a short-term strong impact on Russia's finances. And that, I think, is what mm. the administration is aiming for. I do believe, however, as you said, that Russia has some alternatives now that it didn't have in 2014. It has probably worked out arrangements for financing with China. Now, the tougher question here is even if they have that financial impact or that impact on Russian industries, would that change Putin's decision-making? And my view on that is probably not. Uh, I think he's prepared to weather the sanctions and uh, have Russia stand on its own. And in, the only thing that would really, I think, affect him is his ability to claim that he is a great leader of Russia. And it, uh, that's where I think if he encounters serious military blowback in Ukraine, with body bags coming home to Moscow and families being upset and the public being concerned, of why are we killing our Ukrainian brothers? Uh, that's the kind of thing that would hurt him. Joe Biden has ruled out sending any troops to Ukraine. 
I have not seen anyone argue that um, we should go to war over Ukraine. Correct me if you think that that is actually um, a viable option. So that alone um, suggests a bit of a, let me ask it as a question. Is that at the end of the day, Putin sort of ace in the hole? It's not a great uh, term to use, but in, in other words, we're not going to go to war over Ukraine, Ambassador, right? No, nobody, nobody wants to do that. Nobody thinks that's worth it. I, I can't. I, I haven't heard many voices calling um, for that. You, you come from the John McCain uh, <laughs> school of things. You're, you're a hawk, but we're not going to do that, right? So I just want you first to sort of like comment on that. That that like so that that the spectrum of opinion in the U.S. is pretty clear on that. Am I am I correct? Um, yes. Um, Government policies, uh, that's what counts, right? So every allied government policy, I believe, is in line with what you just said. No one is arguing that NATO needs to go to war with Russia. In terms of opinion here, I've seen a few voices say that we should be sending troops to Ukraine, but that's, that's not the predominant view. And the reason is that it would escalate beyond Ukraine. That we, are, we are not talking about just fighting Russian forces inside Ukraine in order to protect Ukraine, this would quickly escalate into a wider conflict with Russia. And obviously, nuclear weapons are a factor there. Nobody thinks that's a good idea. Nobody wants to do that. There's also a general belief that in the long run, Soviet, uh, I'm sorry, Russia is not going to make it. (laughs) They're going to have to adjust to the real world. And countries like Ukraine will make it that the people believe in their own freedom, their own independence, their, their own economies. Um, as generations go by, uh, countries like Ukraine will become successful and authoritarian states like Russia will never really last. So they'll have to change, they'll have to adjust. So there's a, there's a belief about that as well. So I think those are the two factors that underline why no one is arguing to go to war over Ukraine. Now, in between, is what we are doing, uh, which is helping the Ukrainians. They're willing to fight and defend themselves. And we are, all of us now from NATO, in various ways, trying to help them. I think we can do a lot more, and I think we can do it more quickly, but it is it is flowing. Helping the Ukrainians defend themselves so that uh, Russia knows that it will not be an easy operation is the best thing we can do to cause Putin to decide, as we talked about, okay, it's not worth it. Um, let's let's not do the invasion, but you know he has a myriad of other ways that he can pressure Ukraine as well, which he is using. He'll just continue with those: the cyber attacks, the the intelligence operations, assass- targeted assassinations, funding of business deals, uh, using energy as a weapon, and so forth. So back to Red Square for a minute with Uliana Pavlova. It's the political heartland of Russia. She's painting me a picture of one of the most recognizable places in the world. The Red Square still has the main Christmas tree. A place where holiday joy and Putin's power are equally palpable. Important political decisions are taking place behind those red walls. It is also quite uh, cold. (laughs) Uliana, what is the message in the mainstream Russian press? What is the story that they're being told about what's happening in and around Ukraine. When you watch state TV in Russia, you see, you know, messages and um, 
framing about the Russia-Ukraine crisis that pretty much blames the current tensions on the West and NATO itself. Um, they are showing military equipment being sent to Ukraine. Uh, they show, you know, the United States uh, trying to send even more troops uh, to Eastern European countries. And they're framing it in such a context that, you know, Russia is not an aggressor here. In fact, uh, Russia is trying to build a line of dialogue here. And NATO, uh, you know, instead of uh, following uh, with what Russia proposed regarding the security guarantees, they are still sending more troops closer and closer to Russian borders. As someone who reports on this uh, for English language uh, publications and, and outlets, um, what, is the, what is it you think that the, the Western press misses or gets wrong about this story right now? I think the rhetoric around the Ukraine-Russia crisis actually does vary significantly by country. Uh, for example, in the U.S., um, I think even the framing from the officials is that the invasion of Ukraine is imminent and, you know, um, by watching some of the American cable news networks, you know, you see anchors say it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. While in Russia, I think, and Ukraine, the rhetoric around this crisis was a little bit more toned down. Um, in terms of Russia actually invading Ukraine. You know, we have a Russian spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, coming out saying, you know, Putin got the written responses from NATO and the U.S. We will not rush to any conclusions. We will take our time to study those responses properly. It wasn't what we were hoping for, but... Uh, we are going to take our time and don't expect a response from us, you know, the next day. While, you know, when you're reading uh, some of the English uh, language press from, you know, the West, it really much seems like Russia is ready to attack at any moment. And on one hand, there are, it is true that Russian troops uh, have been amassing along the borders. But at the same time, I think the rhetoric seems a lot more militarized and aggressive. So when you talk to Russians here, um, I think because I am someone who lives inside this constant information bubble, uh, sometimes you forget what actual people think about this. And uh, the truth is, People, in Moscow at least, don't feel like they're waiting for war to happen. We just spoke to some people here right now. How do you think this will end? Only with peace. If they fulfill the Minsk agreements, everything will be fine. If not, then it won't. And uh, I spoke to people on the Red Square two weeks ago, and pretty much the, what people told me was that, you know, Ukrainians are, are brothers, we don't want war, you know, who wants war, that's ridiculous. 
But then, you know, at the same time, a week ago, I went to one of the border towns, and I have to say, the way people felt there was a little bit different. People in the border towns see tanks coming through uh, their town, and, you know, they feel uneasy. But at the same time, you know, no one was confident that the war is about to happen. I live close to the border, the border with Ukraine. If something happens, I'm nearby, so I don't really want anything to happen. It was very much, yes, there are tanks here, and they have been here for a while, and they have been amassing over the last few months, but still, you know, no one felt like they are about to go into a full war mode. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. So much of the, the West's understanding of Putin is about reintegrating the old Soviet Union and, you know, uh, harking back to Putin's statement years ago that that was, you know, the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. Um, what do we get right and wrong about his intentions here? I think overall it is fair to say that Putin's main thing has always been to have pro-Russia leaders in the countries uh, that used to be a part of the Soviet bloc. Whether or not Putin wants to build Soviet Union 2.0, I think, is another question. Um, I think he has his certain beliefs um, because some of his most formative experiences have been around the Soviet Union collapse. And you can hear it in his speeches. He always gets really riled up when he starts talking about NATO. So I think for him, it is definitely a formative experience. But what is interesting to me is that, it, you know, this past year, it's been anniversary. It's been 30 years since the Soviet Union collapse. So now we have a whole separate generation that never got to experience the Soviet Union, but also grew up under Vladimir Putin. I <laughs> belong to this generation. So the way we view certain things is different. And, you know, Biden and Putin obviously have this Cold War context. And I think sometimes it comes across in the way certain things are said and uh, framed and um, Yes, I, I believe that's what happens when you let a bunch of baby boomers run the world. <laughs> <laughs> so as these two boomers continue their face-off, is there a way that the conflict could deflate rather than explode? So let's talk a little bit about the off-ramps here. You know, when we started this conversation with, with the sort of worst-case scenario, it, it seems to me that it's in everyone's interest to avoid that. And that you may not like what Putin has done here. It, it may seem the worst kind of uh, display of, of pure power. But here we are. We're not going to go to war over Ukraine. And 
Um, do you see any sort of legitimate concerns that he has raised that could be the basis of a negotiated settlement that um, that that ends this without a military incursion? Let's start with the second part of your question: which is, Are there legitimate Russian concerns? No, there are not legitimate Russian concerns because <laughs> <laughs> no one is no one is threatening Russia. No one is attacking Russia. There are no foreign troops fighting on Russian soil. Um, it, it is all Putin's own making. Okay, so this there, well, nothing... the Russian view of this would be that that Ukraine, you know, the 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 Bucharest promise that one day Ukraine will be part of NATO is you know is a threat. Why is that a threat? Norway has been a neighbor of Russia since the alliance was founded, Turkey since 1952. Um, The Baltic states are sitting right there on, you know, right next to Russia. Do they feel panicky by the fact that Estonia is a member of NATO? I don't think so. I don't think any of this is real. This is manufactured. Now, that being said, there are a couple... It may be manufactured. (laughs) You know, someone puts a gun to your head. They may think you're threatening their life. No. Um, no. And no. you may actually be. So there's a reason they have the gun there. Or you may not be at all, but he still has the gun to the head. I'm saying his view is he's pulled out the gun because he's got this threat. Now we're saying this isn't a threat. You imagined this. Yeah. He still has the gun to Ukraine's head. Yes. Yes. So we have to take this this seriously, whether we think his concerns are insane and manufactured okay. or not. No? Yeah. I see where you're going. No. He is making up this idea of a threat from NATO as a justification for him wanting to take over parts of the former Soviet Union. It's, it's, it's a story that he has created, just like giving, you know, giving people in uh, eastern Ukraine and in Abkhazia and South Ossetia Russian passports so that he can then claim, oh, I have to defend Russian citizens. You know, right. well, right. they, they right. weren't Russian right. citizens until you gave them the passports. <laughs> so, and they don't need to be defended. You know, he also creates this narrative that there's this uh, civil conflict in Ukraine that Russians are discriminated against and persecuted. It's not true at all. All right. But, but take a crack at, at this negotiated settlement possibility, like the, the, the sort of off ramps here, if, if you see any. Uh, what exactly what the administration is doing is the right thing to do, in my view, is offer Russia channels in which we can constructively talk about security in Europe. Strategic arms control, we extended start. We we used to have the INF treaty until Russia started violating it and we pulled out. We can go back and we can say, yes, let's have intermediate range and even short range nuclear arms control. Let's have transparency and confidence building measures about military deployments and exercises. We used to have this. This was the Vienna document until Russia stopped implementing it. We have the Conventional Armed Forces Treaty in Europe. Let's get back to implementing that, which Russia stopped doing around 2006. There are plenty of things that we can talk about that are real that can help uh, strengthen European security. And I'm sure that this is the kind of thing that is in the letter that President Biden uh, authorized to be given to Russia. So on December 17th, Russia presented uh, in writing documents to the U.S. and to NATO making demands uh, no further NATO enlargement. U- Ukraine must never become a member of NATO. Withdraw NATO military forces from the territory of former Warsaw Pact countries. Uh, recognize Russia's fear of influence in the East. You know, going back to Yalta, all that stuff we talked about. Yeah. Um, this will not satisfy Russia because it's not giving them what they ask for. It's trying to channel this into constructive areas, which is the right thing to do. And it could be 
um, it, it could be good if we did this. But that's that's not what Russia's interested in. In other words, you, the things that they want on the table, you're saying they cannot be on the table. But there are these other conversations that we, the United States should be perfectly willing to have. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that, I think, is, is exactly what the administration is doing. You yeah. mentioned the word off-ramp, and I just have to launch a little bit here because, <laughs> <Go for it. laughs> because Putin doesn't want off-ramps. <laughs> he doesn't seek an end state. For him, it is all about the exercise of power. So he is perfectly comfortable with the heightened state of tension. He's perfectly comfortable with the threat of military force, and he gets to decide whether to do it or not. And he knows that we seek to de-escalate and we seek stability so he can use that against us. So this whole notion of off-ramps is missing the point. What we need to be doing is creating our own positions of strength and applying pushback on Russia so that he doesn't have many opportunities. So you you see, so I mean so much of this depends on your view of Russian intentions. Uh, the the folks who are willing to have a much more of a negotiated settlement, um, you know, uh, Ross Douthat, for instance, in the Times recently basically said, you know, give give Putin. He didn't really say it in these terms, but you know, essentially, give give him Ukraine. This isn't this isn't worth it. But y- your view of that side of the debate is that they just don't understand Putin. This isn't the the sort of realist analysis of, of what's going on here is, is fundamentally incorrect. Yes. Or I would say it a different way. If you are going to be a realist, then look at what Putin has really done. <laughs> so he has reinstalled an authoritarian state. He has poisoned his critics and political opponents or killed them. So what else do we need to see to understand who he is and what he's doing? You know, one interesting thing that we've seen in the last couple of months is um, Putin has been quite good at steering the West in terms of the activity. And that gives him uh, a control over the time as well. And he also is moving forces still into Belarus. So he gets further and further over top of Ukraine. And he's moving um, naval landing vessels from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. And those will not be fully in place until the first week of February. So I think he's using the the diplomacy uh, effectively, but cynically, as a way of filling time. Thanks to Uliana Pavlova, a freelance journalist in Moscow, for showing us around Red Square. Thank you so much for giving me the time. I appreciate it. And special thanks to Alex Borsienko, our recordist in Moscow, for this episode. And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Carlos Prieto. Jenny Ament is our senior producer. Mike Zappler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you hear, subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.